Thanks, Travis. If you have your Bibles, keep them open to John 19. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning, understanding this, this story that Travis just read for you. Do you know how important it is to have the right person in the right job? Anytime that you give someone a job that they're not qualified for, they're not fit for, it can produce some really negative results. Uh, one of the things we first moved into our neighborhood, one of the things that, that first excited me was that our neighborhood every year has a, one of these community garage sales, right? Because I thought the idea, I thought the benefit is that every year, the first Saturday in June, hundreds of people will come into our neighborhood. I won't have to advertise anything. I won't have to let it know. I just can just set stuff out that I don't want anymore and they pay me money for it, which seemed awesome, right? And then we had the first one. And garage sales are exhausting, and they're a ton of work, and, and I've come to just hate this process immensely. But my wife loves it, right? So every year she wants to get rid of all this stuff, and she wants to organize it and set it all up. And so the week before is my least favorite week. The Saturday of is my least favorite Saturday of the year. And, and what happens is, is, is for about a 35-minute stretch on a, that first Saturday in June, um, Corinne makes a really bad choice. Okay, because when we, by the time we get to that Saturday, we have two different goals in mind. Her goal is to make some money. Right? She's gone through all the work of, of setting out the stuff and organizing it and labeling it. My goal by the time Saturday comes along is I don't ever want to see this stuff again the rest of my life. Okay, and so she's priced everything, she organized it, and, but she has this desire every year, I'm going to go walk around and go to all the other sales, and she leaves me in charge. Now, do you, those of you who, before Kmart went out of business, right, do you remember the blue light specials? Right, where you walk through Kmart and all of a sudden there's a blue light going off and there'd be an item that's greatly discounted and you have to rush to it and get it. Man, the second Corinne walks out of that driveway, our entire garage sale is a blue light special. Right? People come up to me and barter. And, and I, I shocked one person because we had like $3 or something. She's like, would you take a dollar? And I said, I'll pay you a dollar to take it. Just get it out of here. You know? like, I don't ever want to see this stuff again. And, and Corinne's learned because when she comes back, she's like, wait, everything's gone. And she's like, how much money do we make? I'm like, I don't know. Not much. Right? I just wanted to get rid of it, you know, and, and, and just, it's never gone well for her. She leaves the wrong person in charge. And when you leave the wrong person in charge, it just won't go well for you. Another, another funny story, I, I have a cousin named Isaac, and he told me this story the other day, and I, I lost it. Okay, Isaac, when Isaac was in middle school, um, his, his sisters were in high school, and there was a time period, he said, where he tried to hang out with all their friends. Now, if you'd have known Isaac in middle school, he was, he was a runt. Okay, he was tall, but, but man, he, he had, you talk about pencil arms, you cough and you can knock him over. Um, and so he's trying to, trying to keep up with these high school boys that were friends of his sisters. And, and one day they went to play paintball. And so he said, I'm going to do that, I'm going to go play paintball. And they actually go to this arena where they, you, they give you the gun, they give you the mask, and you, and you go out to this field and you start to play paintball. And, and he said he's standing there with all these older boys and he's starting to get nervous. And, and the horn goes off and he takes off running to go out in the middle of the field and everything goes black and he just passes out. <laughs> never shot a shot, never got hit, he just passed out before anything happened. Now, can you imagine someone asking him to be a Navy SEAL? It's a no, forget that. Can you imagine asking him to be a mall security guard? He couldn't even be Paul Vlart, right? Anytime somebody steals something, he'd just pass out. Okay? He just wouldn't be suited for it. It's disastrous. This would be like asking Bobby Knight to teach a class on anger management. Okay? This would be asking me to teach a class on how to speak slowly while public speaking. Right? It's, just not, it's not a good idea. Right? Many people in this room have worked with people or worked for people who got a job they just weren't qualified for. And in fact, if we're going to be brutally honest this morning, if we're in a room this size, there's probably someone in this room who has a job or had a job you aren't qualified for. And I know what you're thinking. We're looking at him. Well, it's true. We'll get to that later, okay? 
But we've experienced the frustrations of this. We've experienced the lack of efficiency. We've experienced the angst and the self-inflicted wounds this causes. Yet, yet many of us, every single day, are placing people and ideas and things and dreams into a role they simply are not fit for. Did you know that you have one authority in your life? You might be thinking, wait a minute, I have, I have multiple authorities. I have bosses and parents and church leaders and God and spouses. And, but Jesus taught, Jesus taught in, in light of all that, he taught that for each of us, there is one ultimate master that rises above all the rest. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus was speaking. He says, no one can serve two masters. And the implication there is that you can't serve three, four, five, or six either. No one can serve two. You, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You see, for you, when push comes to shove, there is something that owns you. There's something that, that drives you. There's something in your life this morning that is shaping your decisions. It is setting your priorities. There is one voice. There's one authority. There's one God in your life that you answer to above all else. And I'm telling you someone that who or what we give that role to is the single most important thing about us. Because it shapes who we are. It, it determines the course of our life and has the power to really dictate our eternity. Have you ever felt like when you're going through this life that, that you're constantly torn between two things? That you strive, you want to do good, but you consistently and ultimately fail. That you ever felt like you had really good intentions at the start, but you just keep making a mess of things? You ever felt this gap between what you believe and what you are actually experiencing deep in your soul and in your life? These feelings come because far too many of us have given our heart to someone or something that doesn't deserve it. And I want you to know this morning that Christians aren't immune to this, right? We can claim Jesus as Lord and still give our hearts to another master. I'm telling you right now that we do this at our own harm. We hurt ourselves we hurt those around us we make a mess of things when we give ultimate control to a god that is undeserving because we can't serve two masters today in john 19 the story this is a story about jesus but ultimately in john 19 the, the shift of john's writing focuses in on Pilate for a little bit and in this section in john 19 what, what, what we get to see is we get to see a man try and serve two masters we get to see him torn between two different things, and we ultimately watch when that fails, because you cannot serve two masters. And the failure comes from when he chose the wrong one. Now, the context of John 19, we've told you a couple weeks, we, we're coming to the climax of this book, right? Jesus, already in John 18, has, has been betrayed by Jesus. He was arrested by the chief priest. He was put through what really was just the joke of a trial where they paid people to be false witnesses and now he's brought before Pilate by these Jewish leaders. And last week we looked at the end of John 18 where Pilate questions Jesus, right? And he, and he realizes quickly in the question, this man poses no threat. He's done nothing wrong. And so at the end of John 18, he tries to release Jesus back to the crowd. Only the crowd has been incited by these religious leaders and they want someone else. They want a Barabbas, a murderer, someone who was actually guilty. And so they release him instead. And so at the start of John 19, Pilate really, if we're going to be honest this morning and give him his due, he's in a really unenviable position. Right? Because on the one hand, Pilate has, has been told by Rome, he's been told by Caesar that your job is to keep these uprisings under control. And he'd been failing at it. There's been a lot recently. And so he knows that there's another riot, there's another uprising. It's going to be his head this time. And what he has outside his power is this bloodthirsty crowd uh, on his hands that's hell-bent on this man Jesus' destruction. 
And he's been warned, no more uprisings. But then on the other hand, he's been given this title. He's the governor. He's been given this authority, not just by Rome, but by God, according to Hebrews 13. And, and with great power comes great responsibility. His job is to execute justice. His job is to do what is right. His job is to act fairly. And what you see in John 19 is him deciding, which one of these will I choose? Well, look at verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Pilate starts chapter 19 by trying to serve both. He wants to do what is right, but he also wanted to look out for and protect himself. And so what you see right here at the start, this is a compromise. This is giving in. Right? And, and by the way, compromise is always accomplished neither. What is the right thing for Pilate to do? It's to simply let Jesus go. And I'm, I'm not even saying that as my own opinion. In his own words, Pilate in John 18.38, Pilate in John 19.4, Pilate in John 19.6 repeats three different times, I find zero basis for a charge against this man. He's saying he is innocent of anything. Yet here in, in verse 1, he orders him to be flogged. Which, by the way, was brutal. And for what? We'll look at verse, five, we'll look at verse 4. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered, look, I'm bringing him out here to let you know that I, what, find no basis for a charge against him. Verse 5, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said, here is the man. Do you see what he's doing here? Right, get this. In, in Pilate's mind, this flogging was actually an act of mercy. This is how he's justifying it. Here's, here's his big strategy. He's thinking, if I do this. They'll, they'll see that I've punished him. They'll see that I've, I've actually been quite cruel to him, and then they won't demand for him to be killed, right? And we can just avoid all that mess. Because Romans flogging wasn't, this was not a walk in the park, right? When Romans flogged people, they used, this was a whipping, they used a whip that was made of braided leather strands, and in those braids, they, they, they wove in these metal balls, and so when the whip would hit your back, it would cause these incredibly deep bruises and contusions. And then on the end of these whips, they would put broken shards of bone. And the idea is that when the whip would hit your back, it would grab the flesh. And then as you pulled it back, it would tear the skin right off your back. And they would do this for 39 times bare minimum, 39 lashes. And if the soldiers felt like doing more, they'd do more. And you can see at the start of chapter 19, the sol these Roman soldiers, they, they took way too much joy in this. Right? This, was, this was pleasant to them. On top of that, they, they slapped him in the face. They put this crown of thorns in, pierced into his skull. They mocked him at the idea that he could ever be a king. See, Pilate can justify this all he wants, but I can assure you this did not feel merciful to Jesus. But he's, he compromises. I'm going to go halfway here, try to meet this crowd halfway to just, to just settle them down. And where does this compromise get Pilate? Does this crowd of chief priests look at a beaten and tattered Jesus and have their conscience struck and they're suddenly satisfied? You know, we don't want to kill him anymore. Look at verse 6. As soon as, listen to that language. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. There it is again. The Jewish leaders insisted we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. See, just the sight, just the sight of a beaten and bloody Jesus is like blood in the water to these sharks. It, it, it does not satisfy their hatred, it intensifies it. 
Right? It doesn't fulfill their longing for violence. It increases. It makes them want it even more. It makes them crave it, right? This is like waving meat in front of hungry wolves. Now execution isn't enough. They don't just want him dead. They want him crucified. And crucifixion was the most excruciating, most painful, most humiliating, most shameful way to die, not only for the Romans, but also for the Jews, because these, what these chief priests know is, is, that, is the portion of the law in Deuteronomy 21 where God says, anyone who's hung from a pole is cursed. So now they don't just want him dead, they want him cursed forever. And I want you to see what that, that compromising on what is right never works. Trying to serve two masters never works. Trying to do the right thing and still protect himself just didn't work for Pilate. Because his plan has totally blew up in his face. But there's also, if we look here, there's also already been a shift in his heart that has sealed his fate and Jesus' fate. Because by this one compromise, this one move of having Jesus flogged, Pilate has already declared what his God is. Pilate has already shown us and already revealed who and what he will serve most, and that is Pilate. I mean, sure, in his mind, he can justify it by, I'm trying to save Jesus' life. But however he wants to word it, he took an innocent man and had him beaten within an inch of his life, and he did so to make a mob happy so they would not cause a scene to keep himself and his job safe. And I want you to see this morning that when they tell Pilate that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, John tells us that he was afraid, but he wasn't afraid enough. And the reason he wasn't afraid enough is Pilate already had another God. He'd already bowed to another God. And Pilate's God was his self-interest. Pilate's God was his career advances. Pilate's God was his self-protection. He was his own God. And so how the story continues and plays out really is no surprise. We should have seen it in verse 1. Verse 12 tells us this. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Now that's, that's an interesting phrase. We'll get back to it. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. You see, these, these priests know who, who Pilate's God is, don't they? They know how to get him worried. From 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a palace known as the Stone Pavement, which is in, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was, about, it was a day of preparation. The Passover was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And verse 16 is the one that we should have seen coming. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. You see, in verse 12, when in our English Bible, it says that Pilate tried to set Jesus free. There's, there's some weird wordplay there, right? Because Pilate had the authority to release Jesus. He says as much to him in verse 10. He says, don't you realize that I have the power to set you free? He, he, he didn't have to try to do it. You understand that, right? He could have just done it. But the Greek word there, it, the, the implication is that Pilate sought out, that he looked for, he investigated and searched for a way to release Jesus. And so the implication is this, that by his reason and thinking, he was trying to figure out a way to release Jesus, but also keep himself safe. He wanted to release Jesus but satisfy this mob. He wanted to release Jesus but protect his interests. He could, have, he could have just flatly released Jesus any time, but he was looking for a way to do it while ultimately protecting himself, and he never comes up with it. He can't find it. And so the inevitable occurs, and Pilate orders the crucifixion of the Son of God. And listen, I, I know, right? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not blind this morning. I know that Jesus was in charge of this whole thing. He says so in John 10. 
And I know this was God the Father's plan. And I know this is how this had to go. And I know that Jesus knew all along that Pilate was going to relent. But I don't buy for a second this morning that God's foreknowledge abdicates human responsibility. Just because God knows I'm going to do something wrong before I do it doesn't mean I'm still not to blame. And because of this, Pilate is now forever associated with ordering the death of the Son of God. Do you want that on your resume? That's on his resume for all eternity. And it all started at the start of chapter 19 with just that little compromise. Because the compromise started first in his heart when he gave himself the role of God, which is a role that he simply is not fit for, a role he's not qualified for, and he did it to his own detriment. And in the middle of all this, Pilate gets reminded of what we all need to know. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 tells us that when, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. See, we get from Jesus right there is just a great picture of Pilate's failing. He's misunderstood the entire process. This whole time he's, he's postured and believed as if he's in charge when nothing could be further from truth. Pilate comes to Jesus with this question. Don't you know who I am? And Jesus comes back. Don't you know who I am? The only reason you have power, Pilate, is because I gave it to you. The only reason that you think you're running the show is because I handed this to you. And here, because here is the truth this morning that, we, that is undeniable whether we recognize it or not. Jesus Christ is the God of the universe. Philippians 2 tells us this. Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11 says, Therefore, God has exalted him, that's Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the Bible tells us that one day every single knee will bow before this king. Every single tongue will confess that Jesus is who he said he was, that he's Lord. Colossians chapter 1 tells us this. This is again about Jesus, that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That means Jesus is supreme over everything. Matthew 28, this is Jesus himself talking. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, Pilate has no say in this. You have no say in this. I have no say in this. We don't get to determine whether or not Jesus is king of the universe any more than we get to determine water is wet. We don't get to determine that he's the great authority in life any more than we get to determine anything else. He just is. Nothing that we can do will change that. But what we do have a say in is this. Whether or not we will willingly submit to his rule and authority. That's what we have a say in. And human beings have, since the time began, rebelled against God. They've rebelled against his authority. They've rebelled against this, this idea that he's in charge. Paul eloquently writes about this in Romans 1. And he's talking about humans. And he says, they exchanged the truth about, about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things. Rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. That is such an apt description of humanity. See, there's one throne in your heart. There's one. There's one God that you will answer to. And the reality this morning is this, that you will submit to God and serve him above all else, or you will submit to something or someone else and serve it above God. 
Because Jesus himself tells us there's, there's no way that you can actually serve both. Because when push comes to shove, we would choose the one that matters most to us. And just so we're clear, there's one person, there's one God, there's one being deserving to be in the great authority in life, and that is Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the only one worthy of that role. But we are so prone to give the throne in our hearts to lesser gods who do not deserve it. Now for some of us, it's, it's this idea of success. It's a career. And so we're going we're gonna to chase how we define success at all costs, destroying relationships, leaving a trail of, of people that we have hurt in our wake that we don't care because we're pursuing that next promotion, that next goal, that next thing. And that is our God. For some of us, it's pleasure. And our life becomes centered around this pursuit of something that makes us feel good without ever realizing how fleeting it is. And it ends in a trail of addiction and trappedness and pain. For some of it's money. And those who pursue this God of money always lack the awareness that enough will never be enough. That each dollar you get never fills you. Each, each income bracket you raise up never satisfies you. But the pursuit is endless. You just keep going. Some of us live vicariously through our children. We place unfair demands on them that they meet the dreams that we never accomplished. They fill all the holes that we have in our life, and that, that is just patently unfair to lay on them. For some of us, it's, it's our spouse or romantic partner, or even if you're single, the idea of there being a spouse or romantic partner out there, where you live your life around this ridiculous, romantic, comedy, Hollywood idea that they would somehow complete you, that they will fulfill you, and that is patently unfair to whoever that person is. Your spouse can never fulfill you. Your spouse can never complete you, and to put that weight on them is to crush them and hurt your relationship. See, most of these come down, and most of these come down to the most pervasive God that we all serve, which is ourselves. We never have to ask what we want, do we? We just know. We never have to wonder what, what my opinion is on something. And so what we do is we pursue our desires, we pursue our demands, we pursue our interests above all else. And a life, a life that is all about you will always end up as a really lonely life. If there's a trail in your life this morning of people who flee from you, People who used to be close to you and don't want anything to do with you anymore. People that you were in relationship with and, and they, they just run from you. They want little to do with you. That's a good indication that your life is mostly about you. And I want you to know this morning this. Jesus Christ makes a way better God than you do. He's just so much better at it. Number one, the role is already his, right? He's qualified for it. He's the only one qualified for it. He's, and he's, number two, he's designed you so that you will recognize his kingship and serve him. You were actually designed, you were created to worship, love, and serve Jesus. And when you have him in that right place, in that rightful role, that puts you in the right role, and then you and everyone around you is better off when this is, when this is the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is just way better at being God than you are, so let him be God. I submit to him, submit to his authority, surrender to his leading, give him control of your life, love him and obey him. Stop trying to do his job. Stop elevating your feelings over his commands. Stop, stop listening to your impulses more than you listen to his word. Find the freedom that exists when you have him in his rightful place and you serve him accordingly. See, Jesus knew that we would do this. He knew that we would try to take his rightful place on the throne in our hearts. He knew that this was the bent of humanity from the start. Do you remember our, our, the first fall in the garden? 
Way back at the beginning, God creates the Garden of Eden. He plates Adam and Eve in it. They have everything that you could ever want. They've never experienced the pain of sin. They've never experienced harm or illness or injury. They've never experienced death. Every possible longing in their heart is satisfied because there's no broken fellowship between them and God. They live in literal perfection. And yet they break the one rule they're supposed to break. And why do they break it? Because the enemy tells them, if you eat this fruit, you will what? You'll become like God. And there's the great temptation of the human heart. Oh, wait a minute, I can take his place? You see, we have this default in our wiring that makes us try and take Jesus' place. And instead of us, instead of crushing us for this, instead of condemning us, instead of writing us off, you know what Jesus did? He returned the favor. Jesus Christ took our place on the cross for all the times that we took his. Those lashes that he got from the whip, they were meant for our rebellion. The, the nails that were piercing his skin were aimed at our idolatry, right? The, the beatings that he absorbed were designed for our foolishness. The blood that was poured out on the cross was poured out for our sin, not his. Right? Because all, all our lives we've wrongly and foolishly and boldly and stupidly tried to take his place. And so out of his love for us, he took our place on the cross to pay the price for our sins, which leads to this giant question, what do we do in response to this? Well, first, we must accept his invitation. I want you to look again at what he tells Pilate in verse 11. Jesus answered, he tells Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. See, Jesus knew what Pilate was going to do. And, and, and sometimes we read that verse and, and what we think is that he's giving him the courage to do it. We're telling him that he, the Jewish people are more to blame. You, you just go ahead and do what you got to do. But that's not the only thing he was doing there. I believe he was offering Pilate grace. Because what Jesus also knew is that Pilate would hear in a few days reports of Jesus' resurrection. He would hear that the tomb was empty. He would hear that, that, that this stir is being caused. And, I would, hope, and I, would think, I would hope that these words came back to Pilate's mind where Jesus is telling him, No, Pilate, I'm the real authority. I'm the one really in charge. This is who I am, and you can come to me at any time. What Jesus is doing in verse 11, he's telling Pilate who he is. And just as Jesus told Pilate who he was, he's telling you this morning who he is. It's not by accident that you're here today. Right? And King Jesus has brought you to this room today because he's revealing himself to you. He's in an all-out pursuit of you. that You will never be whole. You will never be who you created to be without surrendering your life to Jesus. And so ask him to forgive you of your sins. Give him the throne of you in your heart and experience life with him forever, true life. Accept his invitation. He's telling you who he is. Secondly, you've done this. You need to get to know him. Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the Philippians and in chapter 3 of this letter, he, he begins to list, he tells this life story, he begins to list all these different religious pursuits that are in his life. How he was faultless when it came to law, how he saw himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, a true Israelite. All these things that in his life were there because he was approaching God. They were there because he was declaring to God how worthy he was. They were there to show God how impressive he was. And he says in Philippians 3, I count all that loss. In fact, he says the word dung. It's dung. It's feces. Because what is now in its place is this. I just want to know Jesus. Because I know I'm undeserving. And I know it's by grace. I know I can never earn it. And so now the aim of my life is simply this. I just want to know him. In fact, nothing compares to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
So the question this morning is this, how, how can you give control of your life to a God you do not know? You have in his word, this is his book, get in this book. This is God, it's not the Bible, it is God revealing himself to you. 66 books, variety of different chapters, thousand years, the whole design is this, so that you would know him. That you would know what God is like, that you would know what, what makes his heart tick, that you know, more importantly, what, you, what he wants you to do in response to his holiness. You've got to get in this book. If you've never read it before, just start. Start this week in John so you can read a chapter a day. Once you're done with that, come find us. We'll show you other plans that you can go through. But make some time every single day to get in this book because that's how you get to know Jesus. He's also given us this avenue of prayer. Man, it, your relationship with God is no different than every other relationship. Relationships grow with two things, time and communication. That's it. He's giving you this, this format to which you can communicate with him, this format which you can spend time with him. Get, get alone and speak to your God in prayer. Get to know him through that intimate communication. He's giving you his church, man. One of the best ways to get to know God is, is to get to know him through his people. You, you, when you come here, you get to meet people who are farther along in the process than you are. Eventually, you will meet people who are not as far along the process than you, than you, and you can invest in them. But as you serve together, as you love together, as you forgive one another, as you grow together, you get to know God through his people. And then find things in your life that stir your devotion and deepen your walk. This, this is uniquely, intimately with, to you. Right, this is, some of you, it's worship, you, you, it's worship music. Some of you, it's, it's getting out in nature, that you feel closest to God when you're outdoors. Some of you, uh, it's talking to other people about him. Some of you, it's, it's memorizing scripture, meditating scripture. Others of you, it's journaling. Others of you, it's some kind of art. Find whatever it is that stirs your devotion, deepens your trust in him, increases your love in him, and give investment and time and priority to those things in your life. Get to know him. And then lastly, as you get to know him, you must love and obey him. And these go together, by the way. If you're here four times, four times in a short span in John 14 to 15, Jesus repeats the same line. If you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, do what I say, is what he's saying. Because he never truly becomes king of your heart until you walk in obedience with him, right? So in your relationships, as you interact with one another, do so in a way that he has told you. In your finances, do not ever let them, do not ever permit them to control or own your heart, but use them in ways to bring him glory. With your possessions, make sure your possessions don't own you. That you leverage them in the way that Jesus has told us to. In your marriage, we're told that, that in Ephesians that our marriage should be a picture of Christ in the church. That we should sacrifice one another, love each other so selflessly that it's a picture of how Christ loves us. Well, you raise your children, Jesus has commanded that you do so in a way that you point them to him, that you invest in their hearts, you shepherd their souls to become people who follow after him. In your career, you're told that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and, and his righteousness. He'll cover everything else. So your job is more than a paycheck. You're to use whatever platform he's given you in it to make much of him. See, the surest way this morning, the surest way to keep Jesus as king of your heart is the simplest. The surest way to keep Jesus as king is the hardest. You simply have to do what he says. And so what is he asking you to do this morning that you haven't yet done? What are the ways that you're living right now that you know are in contrast to what he's revealed to us in his word? 
What are the remaining areas in your life that you have not given him control of? What are you clinging to? What are you hiding that no one else knows about? Well, guess what he knows? Jesus is way better at being God than you are. Keep him in his rightful place. You're so much better off for it. Keeping Jesus on the throne eliminates any more dilemmas. Right? You don't have to sit there and wonder, when, when, what do I do? Well, you obey him. Keeping Jesus on the throne keeps you right where you need to be. You were created to bring his glory. You were called to build his kingdom. Your job is to make much of him. There's no mystery to the aim of your life. Do you realize what a gift that is? Keeping Jesus on his throne saves you from just this multitude of self-inflicted wounds. Whether, whenever we get out in front of God, we make a mess of things. Whenever we stray from his word, we always end up regretting it. Whenever we listen to a voice other than his, it is to our harm. Keeping Jesus on the throne saves you from that regret. It saves you from that pain. It saves you from all those self-inflicted wounds. And seeing yourself rightly as a servant of King Jesus frees you up to, be, to love better. When Jesus is in his rightful place, it makes me a better husband. It makes me a better dad. It makes me a better son and friend and employee or boss when I have him where he needs to be. You will find that those under your care, under your influence, will flourish when, Jesus, when you keep Jesus on the throne. Because this frees you up to serve. There, there no more, there's no need for shadow missions in your life that are all about bringing yourself glory. That you, think, about, think about the freedom of never again having to worry about whether or not you get credit for something. How liberating it would be to never worry about getting your own way. It just, it just wouldn't even bother you. Think about how untouchable and unshakable you would be if everything just flowed right off your back and didn't affect you and didn't stress you out and didn't cause you angst and you weren't offended all the time. That's the power of being a servant. That your only concern is bringing Jesus' glory. You don't have time to worry about your own fame, or your own credit, your own slights. Because seeing yourself as a servant of King Jesus frees you up to live better. Aren't you exhausted of feeling like a victim all the time? Aren't you weary of just always being upset or offended or hurt? Think of, think of the relief of channeling everything that happens to you to a platform to bring good out of it. Think of the relief that would come from getting victory over that sin that has owned you for years. Think of the joy of living guilt and shame free. Seeing yourself as a servant of King Jesus frees you from this insecurity and having to perform for God. He took your place on the cross because you were going to screw up. He already knew it. He died because he's so in love with you that, you were, that he decided that you were worth dying for. So stop trying to prove your worth to him. Stop trying to prove how meaningful you are to God and simply surrender to him. Stop doubting how much he loves you by just looking at the cross. This also frees you up from questioning your purpose. It's been made known. You don't have to wonder why you're here. You don't have to wonder why you were made. You don't have to wonder why you've been placed where you've been placed. It's been made known. You serve your king. That's the aim of your life. And this gives you an identity that nothing can take away. I'm his and he is mine. Jesus has bought me with the price. He's sealed me into the day of his redemption. He who began a good work in me will see it through to completion, as the word tells me. So my identity this morning is that I am Jesus's, and I am his beloved child. I'm his undeserving servant, and I am held by him forever. And so if my job changes, and my title changes, and my roles change, and the seasons of life may change, but my identity remains forever secure in him, I belong to him. Man, I'm, I am one of the hardest people to shop for when it comes to clothes. Part of it is because of just my impeccable sense of style, right? I, that wasn't a joke. I don't know why you're laughing, no. 
Now, here's the thing. I, I'm old enough that, that, that my issues didn't have names when I was younger. Right? So here's an example. In third grade, my teacher built cardboard boxes all around my desk because I couldn't keep attention or focus at all. I'd always be distracted by what other people were doing. Nowadays, they call it ADD. Back then, I was box boy. Right? I also have what they call sensory issues now. Right? Back then, it was just he never likes clothes. I, when I was younger, I would always yank on the, on the collars of my clothes and pull them and stretch them out because something just drove me crazy about the way it would sit on my, on my chest and my shoulders. Which is, I haven't gotten over it, right? I just hide the crazy better, right? And so as an adult, what I do is I obsess over material, okay? And so there's been numerous times that I've bought something at a store that I think this, this would be good for me. And then I go home and put it on. I'm like, no, no, this ain't happening. It's not working. And so I take it back. And it's not that it didn't look good. It's not that it wasn't appropriate. It's not that it was bad style. It's because it didn't fit the way I wanted it to fit, And I just couldn't stand the thought of walking around all day wearing something that just doesn't fit. It would drive me crazy. And this makes sense to us. Yet how often have I tried to live my life serving a lesser God who just didn't fit their role? How often have I lived my life giving the the authority of my heart to something that just didn't fit? And this has hurt my relationships with God and other people. This has killed my soul. It's resulted in self-inflicted wounds in my life. Listen, people, I'm telling you, it is time to return the counterfeit cheap gods to a role that's best suited for them. They simply don't fit. Whatever you've put in the place of Jesus doesn't belong there. Whatever you've given that much influence and sway over your heart doesn't belong there. Whatever you've given control of your life, it's not Jesus. It doesn't belong there. It's time to put Jesus where he belongs. It's time to first believe in him, surrender to him, and then submit to his authority. So accept his invitation. He's calling you today. He's telling you who he is today. If you've never believed in him, start there. For those of you who do claim to be followers of Christ, you need to get to know him better. Make it the aim of your life, as Paul did, to just know Jesus and love and obey him and surrender to him as the king, the authority of your life. Because he's the only one who fits. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just the example of Pilate. Because God, so many times, I and I believe others in this room can identify with this poll of Pilate trying to do the right thing. He wanted to release Jesus. He wanted not to have him killed. But ultimately, there was another God in his life that he was already trying to serve. Lord, what an apt description of me. These desires to serve you, these desires to exalt you, these desires to to honor you and love you, but there's something else in my heart that I give more power to and then I fail. And so God, this morning, I'm most thankful for grace. I'm thankful that Jesus took my place on the cross for all the times I tried to take his. And Lord, I just pray for that that if there's anybody in this room, anyone who be in this building this morning has not surrendered their life to him, has not believed in him, accepted his invitation, that he would A, reveal himself to them, that they would see that he is the authority of the universe and B, give their lives to him today. And that God, for those of us who have done that, remind us of what we already know but are so prone to forget that he is just way better at being God than we are. Can we repent of our idols this morning, God? 
Can we loosen the grip and control that lesser things have over us? Can we lay them at the feet of the cross and ask you for grace this morning? We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.